0: Imagine you're being grabbed from your country. You're being put upon a ship and put across what is called the Middle Passage. And you get to Jamaica and you are stripped. And you stand in a square and people walk around and look at you They feel you and determine whether they are going to buy you. And when you are bought, you are put on the plantation. There was no family life. It was not encouraged. If slaves developed relationships, they would take the children away. They would move and, or sell one of those partners to another plantation. And so what do we get today? We have countries where family life that our people knew in the places where they came from does not exist. Slaves were, fathers were never encouraged to look after their children. When can you imagine when the slaves heard that there was going to be an end to slavery and there were children to be born? They hid in caves. My great-grandmother was born in a cave to make sure that she was not born as a slave. And that is what Britain perpetuated. Yes, I'll take it. I
1: agree that slavery is terrible, but I think this it has been an institution of humanity for thousands of years. It does
0: not make it right. It Thank, make you. It. Thank you.
2: Thank you. It does not make it right. The Honourable alum Dombeya Asamba, speaking at Oxford Union for the motion this House believes Britain owes reparations to her former colonies, specifically on the topic of slavery. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 91 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and I'll be your host today as always. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode. In today's episode we're going to be thinking about a conversation that's currently occurring but hasn't happened in the past um, to do with Richard Drax. Who is a descendant of um, people that held slaves in Barbados um, and still hold the land that those slaves uh, were forced to work on in the plantation known as Drax Hall in Barbados today. Um, It's a conversation that's been happening for a while now, um, in the past few months, but also in in years prior, um, because, um, well, you know, Barbados has been really, I think, thinking about um, some of the ramifications of colonialism on the island and part in way, with um, you know the queen as it were then and and now the king as head of state um, and really kind of thinking about the legacy um, of colonialism in their country and on their island and me and Motley's done a a really good job in kind of I think forcing some of these conversations happen and encouraging some of them and facilitating um, other nations in that part of the world to think about um, the legacy of colonialism of enslavement um, and the kind of what can happen next, shall we say? You know, how can this relationship between Britain um, and the empire, the former empire, that still exists in many ways today, um, how can this relationship continue? Um, what are the next stages for it? You know, what will reparations look like? Will that be possible? Um, so there's all these conversations going on, and I wanted to start the episode um, with Aloum Dombeya Samba speaking at Oxford Union, um, just speaking about... Um, what slavery was like and there are so many um, narratives of, of enslaved people formerly enslaved and, and those who, who died um, enslaved who speak about the horrors of, of enslavement and, and that was quite a light one let's be honest um, but this episode will go into some of the heavier and more brutal details of slavery um, so that is a trigger warning for this episode um, if is isn't the episode for you today um, then that's fair enough. As many of you regular listeners will know, I really don't like doing episodes about slavery. Um, But at the moment, my PhD research has actually dragged me all the way back to the Caribbean in the kind of post-emancipation period. So like the 1860s and onwards, um, as I look at the education system. And it's kind of interesting when you like take out the kind of human element of enslavement and just look at like strictly the policy or the finances or, you know, who owns the land and the the names of those that were involved. When you strip out those kind of personal stories um, and you strip out human beings from something that was so human-centred, even though, you know, the people that were enslaved were literally classified as subhuman, um, I think it, yeah, it's a different kind of experience studying studying it. And that's why I wanted to start with um, that extract from um loom Domber Samba's speech because it put the human element back into enslavement and as we go through this episode you know I'm not really going to get into the stories of people that were enslaved per se um, it will be kind of focusing on the legacies of slavery and the finances and this family the Drax family who have have you know profited so much from Barbados from the people that were taken from um, West Africa um, and the work that they were forced to do in Barbados um, on the plantation you know it it takes away the human element a little bit and I don't want you to forget that as you listen to this episode I want you to remember that you know for all these numbers of hundreds or thousands of, of enslaved people I mentioned they're all individual people and they all have an individual story and we won't probably ever know a lot of those people's stories but they're still relevant and they they deserve to, to be thought about when discussing, I think, the consequences of enslavement and the legacy that leaves on a country and on a people. So let's start this story in a place we're somewhat familiar or with a man we're somewhat familiar with. Richard Drax. Full name, Richard Grosvenor Plunkett. Earnley Earl Drax. 64 years old. Harrow-educated, conservative MP for South Dorset, who has served continuously since 2010, former Coldstream Guards officer and BBC journalist, a strong voice in the pro-Brexit campaign, an MP who believed lockdown restrictions were an experiment in authoritarian government, an MP who failed to publish accounts for four of his five companies since 2009, and a man who opposes the Black Lives Matter movement. In 2021, his estimated wealth was £150 million, but he had not declared the 621-acre sugar plantation in Barbados and an estate in Swaledale, North Yorkshire. He also owned a £4.4 million pound holiday let on Sandbanks, which is one of the most expensive areas for property in the UK. This man, with so much wealth, is of course MP for South Dorset. Child poverty is one of the highest in the country in Dorset, where he is MP. South, The southwest of England generally is fighting um, severe depravity um, as Westminster essentially strangles the life out of the region. But this man is MP there, um, holding all this wealth, not only in Britain, but overseas as well. And the reason this story comes to light is because of his failure to declare those um, four not only tax purposes, but also in terms of his interests um, as an MP. This breach of Section 448 was raised with Company House in late January 2021, as he failed to publish four of his five businesses for decades, essentially blaming his accountant for missing them off and the fact that the plantation in Barbados was in probate as his dad had passed away in 2017. So his argument was that it hadn't been fully transferred over to him just yet. And I'm going to read an extract from a Guardian article written in April 2021 by Paul Lashmar and Jonathan Smith. And the extract states, Drax owns some 125 Dorset properties personally or through family trusts. The estate's finances have mostly been hidden from public scrutiny and involve at least six family trusts, and as many financial entities. When Drax amended his registrar entry in January and correctly named the companies he owns, which relate to his farming interests, he grows poppies to make morphine for the NHS, and barley for craft brewers, there were still problems. Four of the companies had not provided any accounts in the last decade. As both of his unlimited companies were subsidiaries of a limited company, under Section 448 of the Companies Act, 2006, they should all have submitted accounts annually. Concerns about a Section 448 breach were raised with Companies House in late January. Over the last two weeks, some 50 documents from the four companies have appeared on the Companies House website, including a decade's worth of missing accounts. Two limited companies said to have been dormant from 2009 are now shown to have been active. The unlimited companies have now filed accounts showing in some years hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of financial activity. All had been approved by Drax annually as late as November 2020. So not only is uh, Richard Drax, you know, being called on to pay up in Barbados, um, there is a course and a claim and a conversation regarding um, maybe the amount of tax he should be paying or should have been paying in the past few decades due to his family trusts, businesses and companies in the UK too. Now, you know, I'm not an expert on tax, on businesses, on accounts, on money or anything of the sort. But I know that if I don't pay my taxes, then there is a chance that I will be going to prison. And I feel like the same rules just don't apply for everyone in this country. But that's not what we're talking about today. I will leave us with a quote from Alex Cobham, the chief executive of the Tax Justice Network. That was also quoted in this Guardian article um, and he points out that under Companies Act, it was an offence for a person to, quote, knowingly or recklessly make a statement that is misleading, false or deceptive in a material particular with potential penalties, including imprisonment. And I'll leave that there. So that was a conversation happening in twenty twenty one regarding tax regarding you know the passing over of the property in Barbados and some of the limited companies and family trusts in the Drax family name. but this is a very wealthy family this is a this is crazy wealth um, in the grand scheme of of the u k um and in the grand scheme of um Barbados most definitely um and now we're gonna rewind i'm gonna take it all the way back to the seventeenth century. Where the first Drax finds himself in Barbados. And to kind of, you know, narrate some of this story, and probably one of the most, I would say, important. Um, kind of people speaking and doing this work um, regarding Drax, regarding Barbados, regarding enslavement legacies, is Sir Hilary Beckles. He is a Bayesian historian. He is the current vice-chancellor of the University of the West Indies. He is chairman of the CARICOM Reparations Committee. His historical work covers, you know, such big and broad topics um, regarding uh, slave rebellions um, in Barbados, the impact of colonialism and empire on um, society, Barbados society today, um, Bayesian history, education, telecommunications, labour movement, um, sporting culture, cricket and so much more. So I thought I'd start um, with the kind of explanation he's given in more recent times uh, about the Drax family. Um, and this is an extract of him speaking um, on the Times radio. Um, and explaining more about the Drax family in the early days. The
3: first of the Draxes to arrive in Barbados in the 30s, 1630s, and having lost a lot of their wealth in the Civil War, came to Barbados to create slavery in order to regain some of the wealth they had lost in the Civil War in Britain. And it was Drax who was one of the leading architects of slavery. He was one of the he was one of the leading designers of slavery, you know, Drax was an architect of the idea that Black people were not human beings. The Draxes are not just property owners. They're not just people who owned property and slaves and so on. They were the designers, they were the architects. It came out of the imagination of people like Peter Drax.
2: They were not just property owners, they were the architects of slavery in Barbados. Please, if you're going to take anything from this episode, the Drax family were not just property owners that grabbed a little bit of what they could from enslavement. They were some of the architects of enslavement on the island of Barbados. James Drax arrived in Barbados in the 1630s with around £300. And in a letter uh, found in his you know, personal property um, and in his uh, personal effects, it states, and he's writing to a friend, that he's gone there with £300 and he intends to leave with 300000 and believes he will do this using slave labour and the slave trade and well we can all guess the end of that story is that he is more than even twice or 10 times or a 100 times over successful in what he intended and claimed he would do when he arrived. Draxwell estate was where the first sugar cane was cultivated in 1642. The hall remains one of only two remaining Jacobean houses in Barbados. There is no family in Britain that has been so consistently and persistently attached to slavery in Barbados than the Drax family. This is beyond just one plantation. This is beyond one, you know, man. This is generations of a family owning and profiting off the land and labour of this nation for the longest time, longer than any other family, apart from probably the royal family. And it's a bit more of a complicated history with them. They essentially, um, and what Sir Hilary Beckles meant when he was saying they're the architects, they created and managed enslavement. They advised other plantation owners how to run um, their houses, their plantations, how to keep the slaves in check. They're the only family in Britain that have an unbroken link to the wealth of slavery from inception to today, by the royal family. But again, as I said, it's a more complicated story there. Other names that come up in the story of slavery in Barbados are Christopher Codrington and Henry Lascelles. And whilst, again, enormous amounts of wealth um, coming into these families, there is, like, nobody coming close to the Drax family. Um... They passed legislation, the original Draxis, passed legislation that any African brought to Barbados would be deemed and classified as subhuman, non-human, a form of property, a form of, like, you know, chattel, essentially, and shall be enslaved for life. And it was the beginning, it was constitutional in some ways, And the beginning of this idea that an African person and all their descendants would be enslaved. This is put into law by this family. It's one of the first laws to be put in place in this country. And one of the first laws is that what will become the majority population of the country, people of African descent, are deemed non-human and property. It protected the rights of slaveholders, plantation owners, and legally allowed them to do what they continued to do for decades, holding African people as property and deeming them as unequal, subhuman, not worth the same treatment that a human being or even an animal would receive. Again, this is work done by Sir Hilary Beckles. This is work that is put together through the UCL Slave Ownership Database, The Legacy of British Slavery, that I'm using today um, in terms of research for this episode. Um, now, Drax, Estate, Drax Hall Estate is founded by William Drax in 1669, um, and the records within UCL go on to say that by 1691 it's passed into the hands of a Charles Drax, 1713 and 1715 part of the land is sold um, at two different stages um, bringing the size of the plantation to be a little bit smaller however it's the main part is still owned by the Drax family so we whiz 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 all the way down to 2021 um, and it's owned by Richard Drax MP for South Dorset today so as you can see it's a very clear chain of command it's a clear chain of ownership from the top all the way to today it's very clear we can identify we can see the wealth we can literally track it it's literally written down um on the ucl website for the legacies of british slavery you know it's it's in british records um Barbados records for land ownership for tax purposes it's a very clear cut story the question with reparations and we're not at that part of the episode yet but the question is always like oh yeah but who should pay them like how would we get them from the right people how would we know that it was that family that that benefited from enslavement or their ancestors um held slaves so here we go for the for one of the first times and probably one of the only cases we will have across the whole Caribbean of a family that we can see from the beginning to today exactly how they have benefited benefited and profited um, from enslavement. Drax Hall was the largest plantation in the English-speaking Caribbean and the largest functioning sugar slave plantation in the whole of the West Indies. By the 1650s, he was the richest sugar plantation owner in the West Indies. That's only 20 years after he arrived in the early 1630s. He was the first, essentially, you know, in today's money, multi-millionaire from enslavement in the Caribbean. It's not really an accolade you want to hold. Um, but at the time, it would have been something to be proud of. Um, he built Drax Hall Mansion out of the first 10 years of profit. And, you know, because of this wealth and having so much on an island like Barbados, which, you know, is is smaller than some of the other islands in the Caribbean... Um, it's, everybody would know each other, especially at that time. Um, he was described as the Prince of Barbados, due to his wealth, the Prince. This is based off of the backs of enslaved Africans. It was the first mansion built by a slave owner in the whole of the West Indies. And it's still there today in Barbados, standing tall.
4: Oh, my ancestors, so late for me to unwrap, layer by layer, this gift of your silence. But today I place my birth call over my eyes so I may see. And I weep for the bones I find here.
1: Esther Phillips, Barbados's poet laureate, grew up in the shadow of Drax Hall.
4: I was always conscious of Drax Hall because it surrounded us actually. It was on the east, the west, and the south. One of the
1: oldest slave plantations in the Caribbean. Over the centuries, thousands toiled and died, producing the sugar that made its British owners fabulously rich, a place etched in Esther's memory from childhood.
4: Going as a small child to Drax Hall with a skillet to collect milk, my grandfather kept cows in Drax Hall yard. And um, there's a sense of shame, a sense of guilt, in, in knowing that I could have grown up so many years and not know what this plantation house symbolized, what it meant. I had no idea that when we were running and playing on the lands there that we were actually running and playing and walking over the bones of our ancestors.
2: And that was Esther Phillips speaking on a Channel 4 News uh, report that's now on YouTube, um, titled Calls for Draxhall to be Opened to Public as Barbados Becomes a Republic from about a year ago. And I just felt like that clip was so chilling. Um, It not only speaks to this, you know, physical legacy that can't be ignored because it takes up so much of the island, um, especially for people that live in that area. But also the fact that the legacy went unknown for so many. Um, Esther Phillips, as a child, not knowing that she was potentially walking on the graves of her ancestors. Now, if that's not chilling, I don't know what is. Um, And the fact that, you know, the family aren't there to use the property, as far as I understand. It's not like it's a fully running house or operation. It's in part used... I believe it was used in part for agriculture, for other people, um, but it it just stays there. It's private property. You can't go on it. And you know what what has that big eyesore of a building and land going to have as a as a permanent reminder to people that live there and know that their ancestors suffered at the hands of
0: this family? For me, as as a historian and other historians beyond just the physical space, it would be interesting to take a look into the records um, to understand what's the, what's the history? What, what did our ancestors go through? What was the run of that plantation like? Given that theoretically, you should have records spanning at least two centuries or more.
1: How important is it to get access to Drax Hall to find out more about What happened
0: there? We we don't know where the enslaved village is. We don't know where the enslaved burial ground is. We have no way of reconstructing the the life ways of the enslaved using archeology as a discipline because we don't have access to the site.
1: How many enslaved people could be buried there?
0: Hundreds.
2: Hundreds? Hundreds. And again, from the same Channel 4 News YouTube video, that was uh, Kevin Farmer, historian at Barbados Museum and the deputy director of the museum, um, speaking about the kind of physical legacy and what is lost, you know, with the inability of of being able to access Drax Hall and the records that it holds and and the site itself in terms of the graves of those um, people that, that reside there. And, you know, even though... They have passed away, and I've seen it done in in Jamaica um, at different uh, former plantation sites, um, whereby you know the the remains of enslaved people are removed um, because they are not buried respectfully. They're not buried, taken into consideration, burial rights um, of the traditions that those people of African descent might have held, um, and so they are given a respectful burial after um, their bodies are exhumed. Now. I don't know if that is something that is in conversation about regarding Drax Hall and in Barbados, but Kevin Farmer alluded to the fact that, well, he said, you know, there are hundreds of of enslaved people buried there. And just wanted to give you like a rundown of the numbers, because this is a family that from the inception of enslavement in Barbados held slaves from the first possible moment that they could, they did. They brought it over. They were the architects to this day. um, They still own that land, just reminding you, in case you forgot. Um, But essentially, um, it's believed that around 30,000 people are likely to have died at the hands of that family over those generations, um, if you do the kind of maths. Now, the life expectancy of an enslaved person kidnapped from West Africa in the Caribbean was about seven years. And that's why the turnover of people, of human beings, is so high because they weren't expected to live. They were worked to death, essentially. Um, You know, it was not a case that I think we often think about um, enslaved people and somehow them you know growing to old age and oh they're not really useful um for the plantation anymore because they're older and they'll go and work in the house and and do something else or or look after the children and raise them to be enslaved people well it didn't actually work like that for the majority especially in the Caribbean where the work they were doing is is back breaking physical labor in the sun a lot of the time they didn't make it beyond a certain age Um, And, you know, assuming they were were taken as as teenagers in their 20s, they weren't really making it to their 30s or 40s. And that's the reality of enslavement. Um, That's why the slave trade took so many people, because they would not survive the conditions. Now, I've literally Googled this twice because I can't believe what I'm about to say. Um, So I can double check this three times from my notes because I was thinking, surely this isn't true. 600,000, or it's estimated, so Africans uh, were brought to Barbados in the years of the slave trade um, occurring and existing. At the point of emancipation, 83,000 were alive um, to be freed. Less than 20% survived enslavement in Barbados that just to put into context of the 600,000 people that were brought to Barbados in that time 280,000 is a population of Barbados give or take today so that's like twice double over double the population today of the island was brought to the country to only leave 83,000 of them less than 20 percent Hilary Beckles, um, in, in a talk that I listened to about this, said that slavery in Barbados was genocide. Um, and there isn't really a better word for it, because anything that's wiping out 80% of the population is surely a genocide. In 1675, the first rebellion on the island um, was attempted, um, and enslaved people planned to you know, make their first attempt at freedom. Unfortunately, the plan was um, foiled, essentially. Um, they were found out before they were able to really get it off the ground. I um, mean, it, it's at this point that um, it's like the second generation of Drax. Henry Drax is running the plantation. Um, and I think his response to this act of rebellion, to this escape for freedom, really does summarise and really does epitomise the stance that family had and the treatment that they believed these people deserved and again i gave a trigger warning at the start of the episode but this um does get quite graphic so after the attempt was foiled um they captured over 120 africans who they accused of trying to free themselves um, and, you know, attempt to escape. Um, and they just dis- decided that 120 of them were guilty. I don't know any any successful plan or plot that is literally orchestrated by 120 people. It's a large planning committee. Um, I've seen smaller committees not manage to pull it off. Um, so, you know, the fact that they've accused 120 people of it um, already says enough for me. Um, However, of the 120, um, they had to decide how they were going to discipline and punish them to make sure it didn't happen again. Um, And so they set up a bonfire um, on the land and they burnt 47 of them alive as punishment. Um, Another 30 men were taken and castrated until they bled out to death. Um, And that was the punishment. That was all in law. That was not an overreaction by any means in their eyes because that was their legislation. That was how they had agreed that they would treat enslaved people. Um, It was allowed, it was encouraged. Um, They had to come down hard because, as we know, as they've put into the law, these are not human beings, this is property. Um, And to make sure this property did as it was told, that was the consequence. Now, this is only the second generation of the Drax family that would have participated um and owned slaves but this behavior this kind of um training up of other plantation owners of how to treat their enslaved people continues on um you know we have descendants creating pamphlets and writing manuals um which will be discussed um in this clip taken from the wonderful Channel 4 YouTube video um, that I have used so much of
1: today. This is an instruction manual of how to uh, manage a plantation. And it's from 1786. And one of the authors in this is Edward Drax. And in here you see the attitude towards enslaved people. The blacks are commonly addicted to thieving. If it be for their belly, it's more excusable. But I hope none of mine will ever have occasion to be thieves for want. But if at any time they are taken, stealing sugar, molasses or rum, they must be severely handled. And yeah, just
2: another example, really, um, of the way in which um, enslaved people would have been treated um, through the generations. You know, that was from the 18th century. Um, And they started out there in the early 17th century. So this is already bordering on 150 years of the Drax family, let alone the fact that they're literally there till today. So this is decades. And as time went on, they, you know, continued to advise the rest of the plantation-owning few um, of how to deal with some of the issues they faced as slave owners. Um, And, you know, some of them were... Oh, family breeding. When it came to the end of the slave trade, whereby um it was illegal to to take um slave enslaved people African people from Africa to bring them over through the middle passages, um on that trying triangular trade, um that was illegal um prior to actual enslavement being illegal. Um, and, you know, there's an actual time period, especially in the Caribbean, I've, I've read about it in Jamaica, um, and I assume it, it was a lot of the Anglophone Caribbean, that they had a shortage of labour um, even prior to the, the end of the slave trade. Um, and this was not being helped by the fact that women um, in their kind of form of rebellion would commit infanticide, um, would have forced abortions, would would not carry their babies to term if they got pregnant or they would take the life of the baby so that they would not be born um, into enslavement just like um, the clip we had at the start of um, the episode from Alun Dombeya talking about her great-grandmother being born in a cave because it was so close to emancipation and they knew it was coming and she did not want her well her mother did not want her to be born um, an enslaved person you know this is, this is so close you're hearing it. this is this lady she's speaking about her great-grandmother it shows quite scarily just how um, recent that period of enslavement is um, for so many families it's within you know traceable memory she can trace back to her great-grandmother that means her great-great-grandmother was enslaved. This idea that this these things happened so long ago that it's all untraceable and we can't figure out um, where money would come from and who it should go to, is is crazy to me. Um, it Doesn't really make sense. But anyway, back to the Drax family um, and what they did to solve the problem um, of the lack of labor because women were not having enough children. They decided to um, incentivize um and to engage in what was essentially known as slave breeding um financially encouraging and probably somewhat forcibly encouraging them to to have children um by giving money um and it was 5 shillings for the first child 10 shillings for the second child and it went up to the point that if a woman had had six children um six children to be enslaved she would be given her freedom not with the six children um she would be freed alone um and those six children would be taken and used um on the plantations but that is how much you know they needed and especially men you know they didn't really whilst women Um, in some cases, uh, might have picked cotton, this was a sugar plantation, the labour that goes into producing sugar is intense, it's insane, and this is pre-industrial revolution, this is pre, you know, some of the equipment and machinery that exists, and even existed um, in the, you know, 19th, 20th century, and this is laborious, this is obviously why they've taken um, enslaved, and enslaved people to do this work, but the fact that even then, women were still not giving birth quickly enough, um, I think just shows just how resistant they were to giving birth to children that were going to live this life that they had be only, only known and been accustomed to. Um, and again, it just shows the Drax family um, being the architects of some of the most barbarous practices on the island. And again, you know, this is a document that was used all over the Caribbean. They were like the equivalent of influencers put for slavery, for exploitation, for greed, um, all for the sake of profit and wealth and power and status, status that they didn't have at home. I think for me, um, one of the saddest parts about the kind of whole Drax family, the Drax legacy, the Drax name, you know, everything, kind of links to... Well, my first response when I heard Drax and slavery was the fact that there is a Drax Hall in Jamaica. I was like, surely not. Because the only conversation that was going on was um, Barbados and and Mia Motley calling for reparations because of what the Drax family had done in Barbados. And I'm thinking yeah but Drax isn't like that common of a name I've only ever heard it in relation to to enslavement but there's definitely a Drax Hall in Jamaica and I'm thinking surely not surely not surely they were only in Barbados no of course they were in Jamaica too um and I've managed to go this whole episode without saying Jamaica I think um in a bid to to diversify the Caribbean countries that I speak about however got to get them in somewhere um so I just wanted to basically speak about that and I'm um, using the UCL database again um there was um the Drax family did you know try and make it in Jamaica um they weren't you know in, in blunt and plain terms as successful as they were in Barbados and end up um selling the land um in Jamaica quite early on in the 19th century um but essentially uh they were also yeah in in Jamaica, Um, and why they weren't actually successful in Jamaica is part of the reason why the story is so sad about Barbados, Um, and that's because uh, when abolition happened, um, and the enslavement was made illegal in around 1833, um, you know, The formerly enslaved people were now deemed free in some countries and islands. They were as a period of apprenticeship, which could last up to seven years, where they were essentially a continuation of enslavement. Let's just call it that. Um, However, um, you know, I think emancipation and, and when I think about it as kind of a moment historically, this kind of moment of emancipation is like this big thing that has been building up to these abolition movements, these rebellions, these revolts or lead up to um, you know, the the, the law being passed and, and it being declared illegal and not something that can happen anymore. Um but the majority of people, um and I say majority I do mean the vast majority of people, the descendants of um of African descent that are on the island, all they know is agricultural work. All they know is slave labor. What can they do as jobs, realistically? They can't do anything else. They are—they haven't been given an education for a lot of the cases. Um, they don't have any money because they've been working for free their whole lives. They don't have any property. They don't have anywhere to live. There's like nothing for them. They aren't even in, while well, some of them would have been born in, say, Barbados, so the country that they found themselves in. Some of them are maybe away from home and 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 knowing that many of them wouldn't have survived that long so it it really wouldn't be um people that were were transported over for the most part by 1834 um and it's at this point where you know this big law has passed it's like this big hooray moment or that's how i used to see it historically but these people for the most part woke up the next morning and went straight back to work for their former masters but now they were paying them a pittance that be said, they weren't housing them anymore, they weren't feeding them anymore, and that's obviously not to say that enslavement was a better deal, because it wasn't, but for the most part they had to go back, and this is the story of Barbados, this isn't the story of Jamaica, because Jamaica as an island is a bit bigger, there are more options of people, of where people can live, and because of the communities like the Maroons that lived up in the hills, um, and essentially lived as not necessarily the Maroons, but the, the formerly enslaved people that decided to go to the hills and the caves to live, lived as a class of, of peasantry, essentially, because they refused to go back and work for those people they had to call master. And it led to a labour shortage in Jamaica, actually, and it meant that agriculture out there was less profitable, which is why the Drax family sold their property in Jamaica, because they couldn't get people to work on it, because they, would, they chose poverty as opposed to working for the people they had to call master for so many years. People in Barbados, the formerly enslaved, did not have that option. The island is mostly flat. There's limited options of where to go. So essentially they became free and went back to work for their former masters. They continued to work there until modern times for the same Drax family that now sits on £150 million of wealth in the UK. This is the legacy of that family in Barbados and this is why it is so ridiculous that this family are doing little to nothing except for saying it was regrettable that this happened and as we somewhat draw this episode to a close and think about, seriously think about reparations um, and what, what Bajans want them to look like and what they can look like in this case. I think it's important for us to think about the Drax family um, at abolition um, and at the point of, of emancipation um, in the 1830s um, and just to see the work that they were doing um, at that moment With back again with Sir Hilary Beckles on the Times radio, um, just another clip from the video um, taken from YouTube earlier.
3: Now you have to understand the full context of this in which you wish to insert Mr. Drax into that legacy of the 200 years of free labor from people who were defined as not human but property. And then he collected, the Drax family collected their compensation money at emancipation because the Drax family fought tooth and nail against emancipation. They were in the vanguard of the struggle to block the emancipation legislation. And the Drax family in the 1820s were out there on the frontier, fighting tooth and nail to block the emancipation legislation. Then they collected the 4,000 pounds, which is about 15 million pounds in today's money, But critically, they held on to their plantation and they held on to the workers who were emancipated. The workers who were emancipated were trapped on that plantation. They and their children 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 up to today, 180 years later.
2: So we have it there down to the final moments of enslavement they were fighting tooth and nail for the existence of this institution to continue um and i believe they also were part of the lobbyist movement um against you know the pattern of the abolition act they would pay um and i i don't know which drax it was at this point to be honest i've lost count of them all um it's like the fifth sixth generation of drax um they would pay um other people uh in the uk that had influence and power and status to vote um against abolition and against the act so that so that the institution of slavery uh could continue um and and continue to to turn them a profit and now for conversation about reparations that I don't think I've ever fallen down on one side of the line when I think about reparations and I think it stems from the fact that as someone of the Caribbean diaspora, living in Britain and being born and raised here and being here all my life and benefiting um, in so many ways uh, from the wealth of this country through healthcare, education, um, you know, quality of life generally, it's very difficult for me to position myself in this conversation about Caribbean islands having reparations now I think that reparations if you couldn't tell from this episode are most definitely necessary and needed um but I've always been unsure about what form they could take realistically what would be most helpful to you know the ordinary person um on some of these these islands and that's you know this is me just thinking about the Caribbean Um, as a consequence of enslavement and colonialism there. That's not then opening up the conversation um, to countries uh, within Africa that were pillaged of natural resources and people. Countries in Asia that might have had a combination of many things um, torn apart by war, by partition. Like I don't even know where I would begin with that and because I don't know the context um, as well as I know the context in the Caribbean. It's not really something I will speak on, but when I think about the Caribbean, if... If the British government is paying reparations, that's the UK taxpayer, that's me, I am the descendant of enslaved people. That doesn't feel like it makes sense. The fact alone that in 2015 the UK taxpayer was finishing paying off the debt given to the owners of enslaved people at the point of abolition in 1834, to me is already insane enough because essentially the descendants of enslaved people of that Windrush generation um, from other different groups um, of communities from all over the world that would have been impacted by empire and colonisation were the ones who ended up paying off that debt. In some cases, not all. Um, And that's the thing. It's like the British government compensated those people that um lost property, as they were deciding that they would have been called, um, in, you know, the 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 passing of the Abolition Act. But then it was again the British public who ancestrally in terms of their grandparents may not have even stepped foot in the Caribbean, may not even have been of a class to even contemplate owning human beings as property, who were also paying by that that um that debt. But then you can think about it in another way, and we think of people like Edward Colston who used all the money he had from enslavement to build hospitals and, and, you know, to give to the the poorer parts of society in Britain. Um, You know, people benefited here that may not have been directly descendants of those who profited from slavery, like Richard Drax, and I'm coming to him in a second, don't you worry. Um, You know, this country has benefited from the wealth of slavery outside of looking at direct family lines and descendants the whole infrastructure the whole funding of the industrial revolution you know the buildings there are literal buildings in the uk that have plaques on that says this building is funded by the slave trade this um, building is funded by enslavement this country has so much to answer for financially alone and that's not even thinking about the cultural impact of enslavement on these countries, something that money cannot buy. Money cannot bring back people's traditions and spiritual beliefs and foods and languages. And they go beyond just slavery. This is the whole of colonialism and the British Empire. And I'm going to pass over to my good friend, Sir Hilary Beckles, um, because he's questioned on this um, and it's what drew me to the um, Times radio interview because it was him responding to the journalists that was saying oh well this is great you know we've got Richard Drax we've got the case of someone who's a direct descendant of enslavement we've got clean cut lines as I mentioned earlier in the podcast clean cut lines of the wealth and the money that they have have managed to um, gain from enslavement here we are we can we can take this money we can um the country can be um you know given reparations it, a call can be made and quite a clean cut and simple one in many cases
3: but i guess the the question that follows hillary is what's the consequence mm-hmm. now should there be some sort of economic reckoning that would have made vast amounts of money it would have been economically viable because they were using slaves rather than paying a fair wage and that wealth has resided in the family for centuries, that point is very clear. I guess the question always, and maybe this is a unique situation because the wealth has remained in one identical family with one identical institution, one plantation, and more as you've been saying. What's the consequence now though? Is there a, is there a figure you can put on it? Is that, is that what, we, well, what we should be doing? We find that the narrative you have just given to be totally unacceptable and it's a distortion. This is why. When the Drax family was a part of that legislating that Black people were not human beings, the psychological, cultural, epistemological consequences of that, of that denial of your humanity and then the enforcing of that for all of these centuries, that is the greatest crime that has ever been committed. The greatest crime that has ever been committed is to deny people their humanity their right to a human identity and to use your legal and military power to enforce that for centuries. When you try to reduce this conversation to a matter of how much money they made and how much wealth they have, let me tell you, that is a part of the conversation, but that is not the center of the conversation. The center of the conversation is a family that use its legal and military power within the context of the British Empire to degrade 600,000 people for 200 years in the first instance and turning Barbados into a tomb.
2: A whole lot can be said about reparations um, and what they should look like and could look like. And um, the speaker I started with, the Honourable Alun Dombert-Samba speaking in her Oxford Union um, address uh, in regards to the debate that was occurring about reparations and whether the British Empire should pay them. Um, You know, she speaks about other kind of forms of reparation, um, like training and education and and health services. and, And of course, all these things cost money, but they're some of the things that lack in that region of the world because of empire and because of everything that happened there and um you know one of the I think biggest calls in this case um um, with Richard Drax is that the very least the very least um his family should hand over Drax Hall and the plantation land to the government of Barbados so it can be a heritage site um just like I believe um you know there is already there on the island and that already exists for some of the, um, other former plantations. Um, and so the calls right now at the very least are for that family to just hand over that land. And so in that sense, whilst yes, it's a financial sacrifice, um, for, for the Drax family, um, they would be giving up the wealth that is held in that, in that property and in that land, could then be used um, by Barbados, um, you know, by way of opening up these heritage sites and, and using it um, in the case of tourism. You know, it would obviously provide them with with jobs, um, with wealth, uh, with money. Um, in in some ways, um, and that's just kind of one of the the calls in this case, anyway, um, in the situation here. Um, but I'm going to pass over to Professor Pedro Welsh of the Barbados Reparations Task Force, speaking more about the idea of reparations.
3: There are a number of facets to reparations. One of them is that you need to invest in the various Caribbean countries. We came into independence, this country, and there was absolutely nothing that was given to support countries, our country and countries that were suffering from centuries of neglect. I was suffering the legacy of enslavement. nothing was given.
1: Richard Drax, he has said that it is regrettable, um, but that has given the sentiment that also this is in the past. Um, he can express regret, but essentially this isn't on him.
3: You inherited it and you could not be the owner of the plantation had it not been for the blood, the sweat and tears of the people who work there. They're the ones who made you. And whether you accept it or not, you have a responsibility to repay some of that for them.
2: And I will say that is something I do wholeheartedly agree with. That clip again taken from the Channel 4 News YouTube video, calls for Draxol to be open to public as Barbados becomes a republic. Um, this video came out a year ago um, in the kind of conversation of Barbados breaking ties with um, Britain and removing the Queen as head of state um, and, you know, thinking about this kind of next step in regards to confronting the legacies of empire colonialisation and um enslavement in this case with the the Drax family um and so this is where I will be departing and leaving you here um I can't believe I've spoken for an hour it's probably the longest episode I've done in months um but I wanted to say thank you so much for listening I hope you've enjoyed this episode um I do realize that putting an episode out like this on the 21st of December so close to Christmas um is probably a little bit heavy and probably too much so you know I assume that maybe you're not listening to it when it came out during Christmas. Um, and something I apologise for because this episode was supposed to come out last week. You'll probably have noticed there was a gap. Um, but due to life, life lifing, um, PhD, PhD PhDing, and you know everything uh, being quite uh, busy, to be honest. Um, this episode didn't come out last week, and it should have. And so this week I was supposed to do a food episode about some of the wonderful Caribbean delicacies we see at Christmas. That will be coming out next week instead. Um, And I am thinking about potentially putting out episodes fortnightly instead of weekly. Um, It's a conversation I'm having with myself (laughs) and I will continue to have over the next few weeks and reach a conclusion very soon. Um, But I have enjoyed actually taking essentially two weeks to work on this episode and actually produce an hour of what I think is better quality content um and so maybe this will be a better way to to work this podcast moving forward as it's still a solo affair and you know I still do have a PhD and a job um and other commitments that all are are really (laughs) beginning to add up but For now, it will be a weekly enterprise um, and I have hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you tune in to many, many more. Thank you so much for listening today. Please, if you've enjoyed this episode or any other episodes, tell a friend to tell a friend. Follow us on social media at The History Hotline on Instagram, at The History HL on Twitter. We also have accounts on YouTube, LinkedIn and this podcast is available on all good podcast platforms so you've got no excuse thank you so much for listening have a wonderful
0: week and a happy christmas if you're celebrating goodbye